Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. More content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency. This week on the podcast, we've got a special treat. It's from our Grand Round series. Mike Stone came down from Brigham and Women's to give us a talk on point-of-care ultrasound for nerve blocks and regional anesthesia in the emergency department. You can see more from Mike Stone on the Ultrasound podcast, and you can follow him on Twitter, where he's got the handle at Bedside Sono. So without further ado, here's Mike Stone on regional anesthesia and ultrasound-guided nerve blocks. I, my introduction to emergency medicine was, at, was doing a tox rotation at Poison uh, Control. And in all honesty, like most good medical students, I did a tox rotation because I heard the hours were awesome. Um, and they take you out to lunch. And I don't know if the hours are still awesome or if they take you out to lunch anymore, but they used to. And I uh, was really impressed just with how incredibly smart people were and the wide range of things that they seemed to know everything about. Um, I don't know if Bob Hoffman still has this bet with his fellows, but back then he would quote an article by month, by journal, by what type of animal in the study, and if he got it wrong, he owed them lunch that day. Um, they would sit there with them, this pre-like, you know, PubMed. They would sit there with a index book and like look up when he was quoting and try and catch him in a mistake. So, and they never did the whole time I was there. Um, I then did an emergency medicine rotation here as a student and was introduced um, to EM by a Bellevue nurse who gave me a mask and said, "You should go see that patient, honey." Um, and he, uh, it was the winter, and you know this is how this is going to play out. It was the winter, and somebody had given him some shoes, and they were too small, um, and it cut into his feet and came in with just a maggot-infested foot, which was my introduction to emergency medicine, and yet still managed to want to do this. So from NYU, um, I went out to California to train for residency. I stayed and did an ultrasound fellowship then when it was very simple because there were only like five or six places to do them, and nobody thought it was worthwhile, and I wanted to stay in the Bay Area for a year, so it seemed like a good idea. And then went back to New York, brief stint in Newark, four years at Kings County, two years at Highland, and now I'm back in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, in the meantime, I've been, uh, is pretty close, I've been faculty or credentialed as a working community ED doc at 13 hospitals at last count, ranging from critical access, like rural, four nurses and you and 11 beds and a fixed wing aircraft, to urban community hospitals, to county trauma centers, to the university hospitals, the whole mix. Um, so if you have any questions about what it's like to practice in anywhere in the states in any sort of environment, you can always grab me, I'm happy to share. Um, blocks have been a fascination of mine since about 2004. And I, we started doing nerve blocks in a way that um, really out of necessity. So we had a, a large injection drug using population in Oakland. They um, used black tar heroin on the west coast as opposed to the brown powder that people have in China White on the east coast. And would have a ton of necrotizing skin and soft tissue infections and even more subcutaneous abscesses. So you get these patients coming into the ED with a big deltoid abscess or a big gluteal abscess with no IV access, but with a need to do procedural sedation or something to get them comfortable to get their IV done. So when I first started, we were doing central lines for procedural sedation for an IND to then wake the patient up and pull their central line and discharge them home, um, which just seemed like a really roundabout way of getting the problem done. And a few of us read about regional anesthesia, and this is somewhat geography-based and somewhat just generationally read about it, figured how hard can this be, we'll just go do it. Um, and we just started experimenting with regional anesthesia without any real um, training or oversight. Um, and thankfully, we did reasonably well with it, and then quickly into it realized we needed to talk to people who actually knew how to do this. And we partnered with our anesthesiologists in our hospital. There was no anesthesia residency, which was fortunate for us. They wanted to learn how to use ultrasound. We wanted to learn how to safely do locks. And the two of us kind of, the two groups partnered up, and then, you know, here we are 10 years later doing, doing this pretty regularly in the UB. Um, that's enough background. What I'd like to do um, is spend maybe half an hour plus talking about the logistics and safety issues surrounding regional anesthesia and why you need to know them. I'm going to try and answer all the common questions that people end up asking, whether it's what kind of needle do you use, or how much anesthesia, or what kind of monitoring do you need. And then the remainder of the time, Swami's volunteered to let me block any nerve on his body. So we're going to um, demonstrate some stuff with the, uh, my friend here. Thank you to Kristen and Steve and all the ultrasound people for loaning their me their machine. Um, all right, so regional anesthesia in the ED 
um, is getting a lot of press. This is uh, from ASAP Now, maybe from April or so of this year. This is Jim Ducharme, who's a very well-recognized guy. There's a lot of speaking about analgesia and ED. And when you start seeing people who don't typically have sort of an ultrasound slant or a real um, sort of traditional academic focus in ultrasound, you start promoting ultrasound-guided blocks, you, you realize that it's starting to gain some steam. So I've done this for the last 10 years. If you've done a block of any kind with an ultrasound probe, raise your hand. Okay. And that is, I'm going to say that's probably about 40%. Um, we'll give you 50% for the people who don't want to raise their hands. Um, that's this has just gone up every single year. So this is an evolving practice that is becoming more and more widespread in emergency medicine. And it's, it's becoming widespread because it's really successful and it works well. So whether you want to use it for common things that you see day in and day out, and that really at this point, you don't have, I, I think you really don't have an excuse not to be blocking the 65-year-old plus patient with an acute femoral neck or a proximal femoral fracture. There's good evidence that it decreases in-hospital delirium, decreases in-hospital uh, nosocomial infection rates. In some studies, there's a mortality benefit, although those are in very like integrated care pathway places outside of the states. Um, but decreases the need for opioid analgesia and inpatient delirium. And if you've ever seen an elderly patient with a hip fracture get 50 of fentanyl and then another 50 of fentanyl and they seem agitated and someone gives them a little midazolam or something else and then they're loopy and trying to climb out of bed or having an airway issue or an oxygenation issue. It happens quite commonly. So this is something that at the very least, if you leave here, you should feel comfortable how to take care of this injury with regional and you're going to be doing better for those patients. Then there's like the bread and butter stuff, right? People who step on things and embed foreign bodies in, their, in the sole of their foot. Has anybody injected anesthesia directly into the sole of the foot or into the palm of the hand? How did it work out for you? So there's like that special sweat that you get as a provider. Um, it's like the same. I, 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 um, my analogy is when you're like pussing a kid and you really should be doing sedation but you're not doing sedation and the kid's just screaming and they're pouring sweat and it's like a three-year-old and the mom's glaring at you and you're like, Ugh. you're just like covered in sweat. That's what it feels like to inject into the palm or the soul. For you as the provider, it's much worse for the patient. So I'm going to show you today two easy ways to get the palm and the soul completely numb without having to inject anywhere near the palm or the soul in a way that'll make these injuries and lacerations and abscesses and frog bodies really enjoyable. Where you'll see it pop up on the board and be like, I'm going to grab that frog body in the foot because it's going to be really fun and it's going to be, it's going to be good for people. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, we could have gone into internal medicine or any number of other specialties. If you don't like sticking needles into patients and doing procedures, this is not a great specialty for you, right? And I'm not saying you should go do nerve blocks on people who don't need nerve blocks. Obviously, it needs to be indicated, but there are a wide range of conditions that you can do better with regional than with local or procedural sedation. And personally, I hate filling out the procedural sedation paperwork. It's, still it's not paperwork anymore, it's now computer work, but it still takes forever to get through. And I always get some sort of notification that I forgot to check some box or something. So this is just a great, great skill. And then if you get really good at it, um, you can become a nerve block ninja. Um, so this is a guy, this is a motor vehicle accident patient in, where is he? He's in Costa Rica, um, who, a uh, guy who I do some telementoring and distance education with was taking care of him in the ED. He has a head injury, which you can see from his not quite raccoon eye because it looks like it's not sparing the person. But he's got a head injury, he's got a comminuted left humerus fracture, and in their ED, the uh, trauma team and the anesthesiologist did not want to take him to the operating room for general anesthesia because of his head injury. They were concerned about his head injury. So, this, um, this guy who's been working in emergency medicine for four or five years, just started doing nerve blocks recently, um, went ahead and did a supraclavicular block, and you can see the little bit of blood there from where he did the block. And this guy's just breathing room air. He's a little bit concerned about his abdominal pain, which needs to be addressed. Um, but they're sitting here and X-fixing his arm with no pain and him wide awake. So there are some amazing things you can do if you get good at this and you know what you're doing. All right, safety. Um, these are the five things that you need to get right if you're going to do regional anesthesia on people and do it in a safe way that's effective that doesn't put your patients at risk. Okay? The first is the patient. So you can't do a nerve block 
almost everything I say, by the way, there's going to be a caveat to at some point. But in general, you can't do a nerve block on a patient who can't communicate with you, who's not awake and who's not interactive. Anybody have an idea why you wouldn't want to do one on like a patient in the middle of their sedation? <coughs> Two hours is going to get really boring if it's not interactive. So anybody, you can, you can be wrong. So you wouldn't have any way of knowing if it's worked. That's absolutely true. More from a safety issue. You don't know their baseline, so you don't know if like, they were moving their strategy. Good, so you want to get a neurologic exam and document a pre-block neuro exam on people, and if they're already out of it, you can't really do that. And then what about intra-block, while you're doing it? So let's say I go into a block on somebody, and I spear their nerve with the block needle. Well, you can damage the nerve, but you can also like, cause both lines of toxicity and the initial symptoms and the other things that because they're not, they're all Good, so local anesthetic systemic toxicity, or LAST, which we'll talk about, your, definitely your initial symptoms you're gonna pick up are gonna be things like perioral tingling and a sense of impending doom and that kind of stuff, which you're not gonna find in a sedated patient. But let's say you have a sedated patient and you're doing a femoral nerve block and you take the needle and you shove it through their femoral nerve. What are they gonna do? They're sedated, they're not gonna do anything. Right, but in an awake communicative patient, they're gonna have a painful paresthesia and they're gonna, you're gonna know that you're having needle to nerve contact. So you need to be able to communicate with somebody and know that it hurts when you're doing a block so you can not inject, you can reposition your needle and decrease the risk of getting a peripheral nerve injury. All right, that's one. The other patient factors that come into play are, let's get to see, are, um, are having a, the right patient in terms of a pre-block exam. So getting um, a diabetic patient with bad existing uh, mononeuropathy or peripheral neuropathy can be a problem. In general, people who think about peripheral nerve injury and do research on it, think about it kind of like concussion theory, where you can have an underlying injury and then you get re-injured, and that can be much worse than the initial injury, so sort of sending somebody back into contact sports too soon. Likewise, if you have an existing neuropathy and then you induce a peripheral nerve injury, that can be much more severe and much more long-lasting. So, bottom line is awake, communicative patient, you can give them a little bit of benzodiazepine, you can give them a little bit of opioid analgesia, you can give them something to make them comfortable but still talking to you, and that's a reasonable way to go. Um, other contraindications, patient ones, allergies to local anesthetic, right? You're still giving someone a medication, so you need to ask them about whether they have a known allergy. And then, what about coagulopathy? So, think in your head, that won't put anybody on the spot. Um, you're on warfarin and your INR is 2.8 and you have a femur fracture. Would you think about doing a fascia iliaca or a femoral nerve block for that patient? And then, what if their INR is 6.5? What if they're on Xeralto? So, the bottom line is, this is all provider-based in terms of your own comfort level, and there's no absolute contraindication. So, you know, I have done uh, hip blocks on people up to four and a half, five on their INRs. You do it with a smaller needle, and you do it really safely under all shove guidance, and you understand, you explain to the patient there's an increased risk of bleeding because they're anticoagulated. But if they really need it, it's just a risk-benefit alternative weighing the, 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 possibles, the possibilities. Okay, monitoring. Um, this is from the ASA, um, which is the standard that you'll end up get being held to if something goes wrong with the block. So it's probably worth taking your guidance from the ASA on this. And the standards for monitoring are essentially have a pulse ox on the patient, have a cardiac monitor on the patient, have IV access, and take their blood pressure from time to time. So you can think of it just like putting a patient on a monitor for a procedural sedation. It's the same thing. You need an IV, you need to monitor them so you can see if they have vital cytopathologies during the block. Now, the ASA recommends doing this for every block. So I want to ask you guys, how many of you have put patients on a monitor and gotten an IV for a digital block? Right, it's ridiculous. You would never do that for a digital block. So then would you do it for a wrist or an ankle block? Would you do it for a sciatic or an interscalene block? Right, there's, there's a big range of what regional actually is. I don't put an IV in patients and put them on the monitor when I do a, an intraoral block for dental pain or for an abscess, right? And I don't do it for a digital block. This is not evidence-based, and anytime I say something that isn't, I'm gonna try and be clear that it isn't. But for me, my own personal practice, distal to the elbow, distal to the knee, I don't do monitoring. And I often won't even put an IV in those patients. Right? It's proximal to the elbow, proximal to the knee, truncal block, neck block, 
axillary femoral sciatic, those patients get put on monitors. Okay, the larger doses of anesthetic, they have a higher risk of complications. It's my own comfort level. Have I ever done a block proximal to those places without an IV? This is streaming to the world, right? Well, I guess it's, it's I may as well be honest. Yes, I've done that. Um, but it's with a careful discussion with the patient and risks and benefits, right? You get somebody with a big deltoid abscess who has no IV access and you've been trying, and you can either try and do an ultra-low dose block and spare them the central line, or you can go ahead and do the central line. So that's that's a case-by-case -case basis. Okay, medications. So um, this is where I got some of the um, the descriptions that you're going to see on the on the coming um, slides. Cook County Regional runs a, a free open access uh, regional anesthetic site, which is really nice. There's also a bunch of other places that run great block sites. I believe I have a list at the end, but if I don't, I'm going to just tell them to you, or maybe just tweet them out afterwards if you guys can see the recommendation to Swami and you can share it with the world. Um, but there's lots of free open access places to get great regional anesthetic, anesthesia education. Um, who's used chucloroprocaine ever? So this is a um, an ester, not an amide. Okay, so slightly, if you remember from like you know medical school and, and maybe your boards, slightly increased risk of allergic reaction as compared to amides. But novocaine is an ester, right? I mean they're commonly used. It's not like a, a ticking time bomb to use an ester. The nice thing about uh, three percent two chloroprocaine is. Number one, it's incredibly fast onset and incredibly fast offset. So you can get a great dense block in maybe five minutes up to 10 minutes, and then about 30, 35 minutes later, it's gone. So it's a phenomenal drug for things like reductions, uncomplicated reductions. You want to put an ankle back in, or you want to put a shoulder back in, or an elbow back in, and there's other alternatives for all of those things, but if you're going to do it with regional, 3% procaine is a great medication to use. The other reason it's a great medication is because it's an ester, it's metabolized by serum acetylcholinesterase. So even if you dump it into the bloodstream, the likelihood that you're going to get a local anesthetic systemic toxicity, the likelihood is never zero, but it's essentially zero. It's so fast and it's cleaved so fast in the serum that it's, a, it's probably the safest thing you can use in terms of trying to get somebody up. Why do we not see it used? It's a really fast onset and a really fast offset, right? So for most things we do in the ED, when you're numbing up someone's laceration with direct infiltration, you don't want it to be gone in 30 minutes if you get called away to go do something else and you need to come back to them, right? So it's, and anesthesiologists don't use it for short-acting regional blocks because there's no case they get done in 30 minutes. Or maybe they do, but from setup to getting the whole thing done, it's not gonna be 30 minutes. They want longer lasting relief. But in the ED, this is a very ED-specific regional anesthesia medication, terrific for reducing joints or really, really fast procedures where you're going to do it yourself. You're not waiting on a consultant who can delay and then your block goes off. But you're going to do the procedure yourself. You know it's fast, fast on, fast off, and I'm not going to have pain when it's done. So that's one of them. Bopivacaine is sort of the, the safer brother of lidocaine. Right, the easy way to think about it is an intermediate um, duration and intermediate onset. 1.5% um, is the typical dose that's used or the concentration that's used for methodicaine. This is a great medication to use. And my guess is, and talking to, to Kristen and, and Swami, my guess is you don't stock any of these in the omni cells in your ED. But you can get it up to the ED pretty quickly. And if you just go ahead and have the pharmacist call it up, they stock all of these in the OR. They're using them, you can get them up to the ED, and by the time you assemble all of your stuff, it's not gonna be a delay for you. Get the, get the medication that you want to use and not what you're stuck using. Um, but Pivacaine gives an incredibly dense block. It just, it, and I can't, I'm not, I am no toxicologist or clinical pharmacologist. I can't tell you why it does. But it gives you an incredibly dense block that'll give you a few hours worth of really good anesthesia. So when you're doing a, I don't know, like a perilunate dislocation, and you have an orthopedist involved, or you have someone with a comminuted fracture that's gonna take a lot of reducing, they don't wanna to go to the OR, they're hoping to get it right in the ED, but maybe you're waiting on somebody who's gonna be down in a half an hour, and you don't anticipate the thing's just gonna be boom, on and off and finished, like an uncomplicated dislocation, this would be a better medication to use. So something that gives you a little bit more time, gives you a really great dense block, but is going to be safe, and it's gonna wear off relatively quickly. The longer-acting cousin of Bupivacaine is Ropivacaine. Ropivacaine is like Bupivacaine or Marcaine, but safer, okay, from a cardiovascular standpoint. 
0.5% is the typical concentration that gets used, and it's a long-acting anesthetic. We'll talk about the fact that this is still not safe as compared to things like 2-chlorpropane or mepivacaine, but it's safer than bupivacaine. So this is something for, you know, you're going to admit the elderly patient with a hip fracture. Right? You're not doing a procedure that's going to take away their pain. You want something long-acting that's going to get them some pain. Alright, everybody has lidocaine. I listed, I listed it here because it's ubiquitous and we, and we use it. If you're going to use lidocaine for regional anesthesia, use 2%. 1% is fine if you get really good at regional and you're really skilled at depositing the anesthetic exactly where it needs to be. We've done plenty of successful blocks with 1% lidocaine. 2% will make it a lot more successful for you. So if you can get it, use 2%. And then bupivacaine, if it's all you have for a long-acting anesthetic, it's completely fine. Yeah? How about an epi? How about epi? So whether to use epi-containing solutions for lidocaine or bupivacaine or whatever else. I typically don't. Um, there, there's some animal model uh, data looking at vasoconstriction at the microvasculature and a question of whether there's additional risk of nerve injury or peripheral nerve injury because of local vasoconstriction from the epinephrine. I don't know that it's a huge risk. I know some regional anesthesiologists who still use epi. The real reason, why, so there's two reasons why you, you would you know, why you think about using epi, right? One is you can um, end up with a longer block because of local vasoconstriction. The other is that if you're doing a block and you're worried about local anesthetic systemic toxicity, if your block has, if your solution has epi in it, you will see them get tachycardic and hypertensive from the epi before you get to a high enough dose that you're worried about the actual local anesthetic. So those are the two reasons. Um, I don't do it. None of the anesthesiologists in, in either of the two places where I work now do it. Um, so I think it's fallen out of favor, but there's probably places in the world where they still use epi all the time. Alright, um, this is probably worth reading. Um, this is the American Society of Regional Anesthesia's practice advisory on LAST, on local anesthetic systemic toxicity. It's only two pages long, um, but if you're like me and you don't really like to read that much, um, there is a checklist, um, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but I put this up because this is the key take home for me is that over 90% of cases of local anesthetic systemic toxicity happen with bupivacaine, ropivacaine, and then the isomer levopivacaine. Not with ropivacaine, not with lidocaine, not with 2-chlorocrocaine. So just know that if you're using the longer-acting drugs, that's when you're going to get into a significant risk of having local anesthetic systemic toxicity. That's when you should really be monitoring for it and concerned about it. Um, treatment for local anesthetic systemic toxicity. So Swami does his first block on me, and I get perioral tingling and a sense of impending doom, and then I have a seizure and collapse back in bed and lose pulses. So first thing, what's the first thing you do? You guys are emergency physicians. Right? Don't make me stage it up here and pretend to do it. Right. Yeah, ABCs, right, go back to your basics, but yeah, initiate ACLS. If you have a dysrhythmia, don't give lidocaine to treat it. Okay. Um, benzodiazepines for seizures are typically the first line, as they are with pretty much every toxicologic seizure that you can see. And then somebody already said intralipid, we've talked about it, so lipid emulsion therapy, um, and, you know, I always forget, it's like one to three mLs per kilo, you, you, whatever. It's on the bag. You put the bag up, you start the bag. <laughs> Your pharmacist is there to help you. But um, so yeah, 1.5 mL per kilogram of lean body mass intravenously over a minute. It comes in a 100 mL bag, so literally you just put the bag up and you start the bag. Okay, I can gratefully say that I've never had to administer intralipid for local anesthetic systemic toxicity. Um, but if you do, regular ACLS, avoid local anesthetic for things like cardiac arrhythmias, and um, and go ahead and, and treat. Okay. What's the other thing we worry about other than last? Um, we worry about uh, post-operative neurologic symptoms, which is because most of this literature comes from the OR, so that's where you end up with that, or peripheral nerve injury. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But first things first, 12,666 prospective ultrasound-guided blocks. How many cases of last do you think we have? 10, 0, 100? 
12,568. Um, they, they have one case. They have one case of last, and their one case of last was with bupivacaine, and it was with a continuous catheter-based um, block. So what they've done um, is, you know, you guys are going to be doing single-shot blocks. You know, clean the skin off, put the needle in, deposit the anesthetic, take the needle out. You're done. What they'll do oftentimes in the OR or in the PACU is do a block and then thread a catheter in and then continually drip in some local anesthetic there. So obviously your risk is going to be higher because you're giving higher doses over a longer period of time. And what they did, it was a femoral block, and you don't have to raise your hand here because it'll, it'll be probably, you know, you're probably hard enough on yourself and embarrassed enough that you've done this. I've done this. I'll, I'll admit to it. When I was learning all the same guided procedures, but you're going through an out-of-plane procedure, right? So typically short access to the target, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is that the needle's crossing the plane. And has anybody, maybe just think to yourself, ever kind of gone too deep and thought the needle was still superficial, but they've crossed the plane of the beam? So they did that with this. And they, instead of being superficial, the, the tip was actually in the femoral vein. And they threaded the catheter into the femoral vein for whatever reason, didn't aspirate blood, and then dripped butivacaine directly into the femoral vein. Right, which will cause local anesthetic systemic functions. <laughs> In case you were wondering, every single time. So, so it, it's just a good reminder that ultrasound guidance makes everything you do safer in terms of procedures, as long as you know what you're doing. Right? Just like a stethoscope makes you often a little bit better at figuring out what's going on in the lungs if you know what things sound like. Right? So any tool is only going to be as good as the person using it. And people love to say that ultrasound is operator dependent, which is such an enormous pet peeve for me, because so is intubating, and so is reducing a fracture, and so is splinting, and so is having an end-of-life conversation, and so is everything we do is operator dependent. When I look at an EKG and I say, oh, that's some subtle ST depressions, and my partner goes, nah, that's nothing, I think it's nothing, that's operator dependent. So learn how to use this thing, or the other ones that you have in the ER as well, because if you don't learn how to use it, it's not going to make you safer. And every place has seen ultrasound-guided pneumothoraces from IJs, ultrasound-guided carotid artery lines with pressors and strokes, and everybody, every place this happens. That's like the sound I hear in my sleep, that about the sound. It's probably a little loose maybe on that side. It's plugged in on this side. Just a second. Um, so, so just a reminder to, um, to, to really know where your needle tip is, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go. Um, all right, needles. So if I can give you a little like unsolicited advice about how to practice emergency medicine, when I worked, I've already told you I've been like in every kind of hospital in, in the country, some outside of the country, but in the country right now, I work in two places. One is basically the equivalent of Tish. Right, I mean, tertiary care, complicated patients, primary care docs, oncology, advanced cardiac stuff. And then the other is a community hospital where there's no residents, we sometimes have PA coverage, and you're just turning out patients and, and just like a regular community job. When I work in the community site, sometimes in the academic site, but always in the community site, I come on, I get a vial of lidocaine, it's usually 1% lidocaine without, because um, that's what the nurses will grab cheaply and is like lying around in the drawers for me. And I fill up five or ten of these insulin needles with one cc in each one of them, and I put them in my pocket. And over the course of the shift, I end up using pretty much all of them. And I use them for IV starts, for doing peripheral uh, IVs with ultrasound guidance. I use them for blocks. I use them for arthrocentesis. I use them for anything I'm going to do that's painful on a patient. The nice thing about them is you've got it on you. Typically, the ultrasound's in there. Let's say I'm going to do a nerve block on somebody. I find where I'm going to go. I take an alcohol pad from the cart that's right in every single room. I wipe the skin, and I raise a wheel with that one cc tiny needle, comfortable for the patient, insulin syringe. Then I go get all the gear that I need, the different needles, the additional anesthetic, everything else that I want. I come back in. As opposed to a mark with a pen, there's a wheel there. It's not going away. I can prep over it with chlorhexidine and they're numb the skin, which is the only part that hurts anyway. And then I can put a big needle through that, and they're not uncomfortable. It's just, it's a little tiny thing, but I think it goes a really long way, and it's, it's pretty, you know, it's nice just to have a pre-shift routine anyway, so it, it makes me happy. Um, these are the needles that you guys probably have, and I'm probably not the hub and the graduated stuff on it, but these are the needles that, like, if you open up a standard needle, like an 18-gauge needle, to aspirate a knee, in the AD, you're going to draw medication, or unless you have fill needles, or it's a standard needle, it's a quinky tip needle. All right, it's also the same 
pointing tip that you'll get on the 22 or the 20 gauge spinal needles that you use in the, in the LP kits. It's a sharp cutting needle, okay? It's got a really long bevel and a very, a, a very short angle, a, a long angle on it, right? It's just this, this long pointy tip. Um, they look like this, like the ones on the top. Okay, that's a, a, a standard pointy tip. On the bottom is a short bevel. Um, the standard bevel needles like this are sharp and they glide through tissue. So one of the things, and there were many that confused me when I was starting in emergency medicine, was this whole idea of a lumbar puncture and feeling a pop when you got through into the appropriate space. So do, do you guys always feel a pop? Like a real pop? I've never felt a real pop with a quickie needle. And the reason is that the people who wrote the textbooks about the procedures and how to do an LP trained when you used to autoclave needles. So you would autoclave them and reuse them. And as they got duller, you would feel a pop when you went through the the structures. Right? With a sharp, brand new quickie that's sterile, you just glide right through everything. You go you know, parallel to the fibers and everything, if that works, we think it does. And, and then you get in and you're like, I didn't feel a pop, but whatever, I'm in. Um, I did blocks with these for the first, I don't know, five years of doing blocks. I don't think that they're unsafe, and I want to be clear about that. They're not what I use anymore. Um, there's some, again, non-human data, or at least in vitro data, that you are more likely to penetrate a nerve with a needle like this, but then there's also some data that the shorter, blunter tip needles are more likely to cause damage to the nerve if you penetrate the nerve. So, not, I don't use these, but I don't use them because I think they're unsafe. I, I don't use them because there's a better alternative, which we'll, we'll talk about. And if I'm in a pinch, I'll totally use them. Okay, if I couldn't find what I want, I would still use them. Um, most anesthesiologists are using something like this, which is a short bevel for a blunt tip needle. Um, a lot of them are now manufactured with these little divots kind of bezeled into, the, into the, the tip of them, so they're very echogenic, so they reflect more ultrasound waves that are easier to see. Um, the nice thing about a short beveled needle, or a blunt needle of any kind, is that you do feel pops. And you feel pops whether you're doing an LP or whether you're doing a nerve block. As you go through a fascial plane, you'll actually feel, you're pressing, you're pressing, and then there's a loss of resistance, and you'll feel that pop. That tells you where your needle is. And it tells you where it is really in a, in a plane, in a fascial plane that separates muscles. In between those muscles lying in that fascial plane are nerves. So what you want to do is get the tip of the needle right into that plane, and when you start feeling those pops, because it's blunt, you penetrate the fascia, and then you're in between those fascia layers, and you're in the right spot. So you get a lot of tactile feedback, and it's just, I think, easier to put the needle where, where it wants to go, where you want it to be. All right. People have asked me about these, like the Whitakers or the Schrott needles. They're, you know, people will talk about using these for, for LPs sometimes, for the, the pencil point or diamond point needles. Um, they are blunter, this one looks sharp, but in general they're blunter than the Quinkies, um, and they're non-cutting. But the port for the solution to come out comes out the side a little bit set back from the tip, and I think that that's always been frustrating for me trying to do blocks, because you see the tip, you don't really see where that port is, and it's always coming out a little bit away from where you want it to be, when you try to correct, you overcorrect, and it doesn't tend to work. Um, this is what I would recommend you guys use. And this is something called a tubing needle. Um, T-O-U-H-Y, um, and this is what you'll see people use in epidural kits. It's also something that regional anesthesiologists use all the time. Um, and it's because the, the port is at the tip, but it's got that curve and it's a nice blunt tip to it. So you'll feel all those pops and clicks as you're putting the needle through. If you don't think you stop these, you do stop them. Okay, they are in your ED and they're in, they're in a tray in your stock room somewhere in the ED. Every place has two weeks. They have them for epidurals. If not, you can literally have your materials management person talk to the people who stock the OR and put a box of two weeks in the ED. Your hospital already has tons of them, and they're inexpensive. There's no reason not to stock them. Okay. Other things about needles. Oh, gauge. So when I started doing peripheral blocks, I used a very small gauge needle, like a 25 gauge, the orange tipped quickie needle. Because um, I thought that a small needle would be good because it'd be small and I'd be less likely to cause damage with it and, and things would work out well. Um, that's completely backwards from the way you should be doing it. So a larger needle is easier to see, 
on ultrasound, so you're going to have better control of where the tip is, but it's also less likely to cause nerve damage. So we know that you can penetrate nerves with ultrasound and it, with, with a block, and using ultrasound, we've seen it happen. You can get into a nerve, and you can inject anesthetic intraneurally. And we know that traditionally that's a bad thing, and we don't want to do that. But we now know that that happens all the time in very experienced hands, in people who never go on to have a complication at all from it. And there are some groups that are looking at doing intentional direct intraneural injections of small volumes of anesthetic, and they're showing that they just get really dense blocks and people do great. It has not caught on to the point yet where I'm recommending that you intentionally try and inject into the nerve. But if you put a needle into the nerve and the needle size is bigger than the actual fascicles that carry the nerve axons, it's kind of hard to penetrate something when it's bigger than that target. Does that make sense? So there are people who, in very busy regional practices, who are doing, you know, cranking out dozens of interscaling blocks a day for arthroscopic surgery in their day surgery clinics, or numbing up the skin with something like I showed you, like an insulin needle, because it's just cruel to put a 16-gauge needle through the neck otherwise, but then using a 16-gauge tube to do these blocks, because they figure they can never get in the wrong spot if it's a huge needle. So I don't use a 16-gauge tube for most of my blocks. We stock 20-gauge tubes in the ED, and that's what I use. Um, I think it's perfectly fine. It's a nice middle ground without feeling like you're putting a spike through somebody's neck, but without having this tiny, tiny needle that may be actually riskier for the patient. And the 20s show up great on ultrasound, you can see them easily. So medium gauge or high gauge needle. And then the last thing for needles is if you've ever tried to put a blunt needle through the skin, which you probably haven't because you're using regular quinkies for everything, when you try to do this, you're going to realize that it takes a lot of force to put a blunt needle through the skin. You may actually want to take an 18-gauge quinky or a scalpel and just make a tiny stab and then put it through. Or most of the time with a 22 as long as you're perfectly good to the skin, you can kind of pop it through skin through the wheel you made and then change the angle and then it'll glide easily through the skin. So don't be, uh, don't be frightened off by the fact that you need a lot of force to get through skin. All right. And then finally on safety, pressure. So peripheral nerve injury um, is still a complex thing. If you look at people who get general anesthesia and you look at their incidence of post-operative neurologic symptoms of peripheral nerve injury, it's actually higher than a group of people who get regional anesthesia. So I'm going to say again because it's confusing. General anesthesia ends up with a higher risk of peripheral nerve injury than regional anesthesia. And it's typically, we think, positioning and compression and things like that in neuropraxis. That's just one of many things we don't understand about peripheral nerve injury. Whether it's the patient, is it patient factors, the way they, they metabolize local anesthetics, existing neuro, uh, neuropathy that may be subclinical and tough to detect, is it that the technique is wrong and we put a needle through the nerve, is it compression? Nobody really knows. The things you're going to do to reduce peripheral nerve injury or have an awake communicative patient who can tell you if they have a painful paresthesia. If you go to inject and they have a painful paresthesia, you need to stop injecting and move your needle. Okay? Avoid intentional intraneural injection. So if you inject a little test and the nerve swells up, you're in the nerve. So you may want to move and reposition from there. And then the last thing is pressure. And pressure is you're trying to inject and you're feeling resistance. The problem is you can get to pretty high PSI without feeling resistance in your hand. So if you've ever pushed dextrose into an IV for somebody who was hypoglycemic, you're like leaning on it, trying to push it in, it's very viscous and it's hard to get through. You won't have that tactile feedback when you have resistance with the nerves. So you need to do something different. And what most places do in busy regional practices is they hook up these things, which are just like the little pressure bags that you put IV fluids through, where you pump, 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 and it's like green, yellow, red, and it tells you what the pressure is and is it too high. This is the same thing. This will pop up and go from white to yellow to red and tell you that you're in the dangerous zone. But we don't stock those in our ED, and I don't feel like going to the PACI and swiping a bunch for the ED. So you can do this, which is really easy and involves an assistant, which makes people very engaged in what you're doing and like excited to help out. So this is essentially, um, this is physics back to where I don't remember it, but it, what you do is you take a, a 20 cc syringe, you put 10 mLs of anesthetic in it, in this case it was normal saline MS for their experiment, and then you put 10 mLs of air in it. You hold it so the air side, plunger side is up, 
And as you're injecting, if you compress that air column to 5 mLs or less, you've exceeded the pressure that's considered potentially dangerous for nerve When you're injecting, you're not going to get any, you're not going to compress it at all if there's no resistance. It's just going to go in, the whole thing, the, the fluid's going to go down, the air is going to go down together, and you've got a nice resistance-free system. If you start to compress the air before the fluid starts going in, then you know that you've got pressure and you've got to readjust. So it's totally cheap, easy, and then that way when you get the medical student or the tech or your junior resident or whoever else is involved, you're like, I have a really important job for you. You need to press on this. You need to tell me if you're starting to compress it down. And then they're totally engaged in it, and, and it's, a, it's a fun thing for everybody. Okay. Um, nerve injury, I kind of talked about. I, I remind myself to put this up there. Just You need to document what you're doing when you're doing regional. Um, not only for just you should document what you're doing whenever you take care of a patient, but this has a way of um, escalating into interdepartmental, political type scenarios when it's not done right. So you want, I typically recommend that you dot, you have a standard, um, what do you guys have for an EMR? Are you guys using Epic or what are you guys using, using Epic? So there's, there's some standard templates that you can get in Epic that um, will kind of talk about what you did for your block. And I think like this kind of stuff is pretty much reasonable and standard. You did a neuro exam, were they awake and alert? Did they have immediate paresthesia? All the kind of stuff we're talking about. And then the other thing is to document on the patient. So um, I've definitely had more than one case where I neglected to document on the patient with a, with a Sharpie or a marking pen, and then a consultant came and was very concerned about whatever nerve injury this person must have had because they were sitting there and reducing whatever, or addressing whatever, and the patient had no pain. Um, so you, you really gotta put it on the patient as well and, and mark that they were blocked. All right. Almost through the non-demonstration part of this. So setup. Whenever you do an ultrasound procedure of any kind, and I'm sure you've already heard this already from the ultrasound folks here, you want the machine on the other side of the gurney from you, right? You want to be able to look down at what you're doing, up at the screen, down at what you're doing, and back and forth without having to turn your head and look away from the the field where you're practicing. So set up in a way that you're comfortable. The machines across the bed from you. Um, if you're doing a single shot injection or a single shot aspiration of almost anything, I feel that it's completely reasonable to do this as opposed to a full sterile probe sheet. When you put something in the body that stays in the body, like a central line or a pigtail catheter, you should have a full sterile probe sheet and a full drape and treat it like a sterile procedure. This should be treated in a sterile, you know, generally sterile kind of way. So for hexidine for the skin, a sterile covering for the transducer and a single-use packet of surgery lube or other lubricant that's sterile for the skin. Okay? I always told people just put the, the adhesive dressing directly on the transducer. You don't need any gel in between the two. And you're right that you don't need any gel in between the two to get a good image. But if you do that about two or three hundred times, you'll start to peel off the matching layer, which is the gray part on the top of the transducer, and end up needing to replace your transducers more often. So a little bit of non-sterile gel on the transducer, a transducer cover, sterile gel on the outside. And this is what you're doing, all right? So what we have is a peripheral nerve in the forearm here. This is ulnar nerve. Ulnar artery is down here. Nerves, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at um, when I shut the computer off and turn on the ultrasound. But in general, below the clavicle, they look like this. They're predominantly hyperechoic or bright and they've got lots of black dots inside of them. Okay, above the clavicle, they're more black, but we'll look at those two. This bright white line, this hyperchoic line coming off there, extending off here over the artery, and then extending off here, that's fascia. All right? And what we're going to try and do is put the needle down right onto the fascia. And in this case, it's a quinky needle, it's a cutting needle. It's a little closer to the nerve than it probably needs to be, but as you inject, you're getting local anesthetic, which is fluid, so it's black, that's going to start to track and kind of dissect out the nerve. And you can see that as you reposition the needle and inject, it'll start to peel the nerve off of the fascia. And you can kind of advance the needle into the pocket that you're making. And you can be incredibly OCD and meticulous about this. Um, like this case. Um, but you don't need to be. And you can end up getting, you know, the, the anesthetic will diffuse into the nerve, and then it'll, it'll diffuse through the nerve. 
It's not like there's a stop point in the middle of the nerve, and if you don't get all of the surface, well, that side's totally not going to get numb. <laughs> it's going to go through. It's just going to take a little bit longer because it's less surface area, and this is back to like you know basic physics. So, what I love about ultrasound for regional, aside from the fact that it works for almost anything, and you can make patients comfortable and do painful procedures and avoid procedural sedation, and it's a procedure and it's fun in and of itself, is it takes all the guesswork out of regional. So if you've done a wrist block or an ankle block or a femoral block with landmark techniques, and you've walked out of the room kind of like, I hope that works, um, you know that sounds familiar to some of you, I can tell. Um, it, uh, this takes, you see this, you have a nerve that's completely surrounded by local anesthetic. Yes, there's probably like one in 500 people who are just refractory to local anesthetics, and you see these amazing blocks and they're still in pain, but that's gonna happen like once, twice in your career. Most people, when you see this, you know they're going to be numb. You go get all your stuff together, you come back to them, and they're numb, and you're ready to go. And it takes away that sort of anxiety of, like, is this going to work? Is it not going to work? Is this a waste of time? Do I need to re-block them? Um, so it's really satisfying to see that. One of the other things about it is you should see that spread of local when you inject. So if you're injecting and you don't get that black spread on the screen, that means that either you're not looking at your needle tip, right? You're actually like completely off from where the needle is or the anesthetic's going into something that's not spreading in the tissue, like a vessel. Okay, so if you, if you inject and you don't see spread, stop injecting. You're not gonna give anybody local anesthetic systemic toxicity with half a cc or a cc of local anesthetic. Don't panic, but relocate your needle tip and make sure that when you inject, you actually see spread in the tissue itself. Just another example of the same sort of thing and where how fluid likes to spread in the fascia. So here they're staying further from the, from the nerve, and you're seeing it just kind of track along the fascia as you inject. And they don't bother getting this bottom surface of the nerve. This is going to work completely fine. Typical time for block sets, the smaller the nerve, the more peripheral, the faster it'll set. So if you do a regional block of the ankle or a regional block of the forearm, and you come back in 10 minutes, they're almost always numb. If you're doing a femoral nerve or a brachial flexus block or something more central, it can sometimes take 20, 30, 40 minutes to really set it off. So you want to have a reasonable expectation. Don't do the numb the skin, place the block, one, two, three, four, okay, let's go. Right? That's like when your consultant's there for a difficult procedural sedation or reduction of a fracture dislocation, and you push the propofol, and their eyes are still open, and they start pulling on the arm. Right, like well, you're doing this for a reason. You want to get them numb, so give it enough time to set. Okay. Then you can do outer plane. Right. So here, you're not going to see the needle tip. You're just going to see local anesthetic spread. And this takes a little more time to get comfortable with. This is the tibial nerve at the ankle, and you don't really see the needle tip that well. But you're seeing local anesthetic spreading across here. That's probably needle tip right there. Right. And what this person wants to do is they want to get spread underneath the tibial nerve here. And they're working on it, they're trying to get closer, and you're gonna see this is, I like this clip because it's sort of real life, right? It's not a perfect clip. So there's the needle tip, they're gonna try and inject again. And when they inject again, they're gonna see that there's some spread, but the spread's still gonna be superficial to this fascial line. Right, so still superficial. They're repositioning, they're trying to go deeper. Still superficial. They pop through. And now it's deep. And that's sort of the little tiny test doses working on getting spread to the area that you want it to spread. If you can put in a peripheral IV with an ultrasound, you can do a peripheral nerve block. And in fact, a peripheral nerve block's way easier than a peripheral IV. Peripheral IV, you've got to get in, you've got to make sure you don't backwall it, you got to make sure that you've got a good angle to thread your catheter, it doesn't kink, that you've left enough catheter in the vessel, that when you let go of the pressure of the transducer, it doesn't pull the hub up and take the whole IV out of it again. There's a lot of nuance to doing peripheral IVs with ultrasound This is not a lot of nuance. This is put a needle in, spread. Is it spreading where you want? No. Reposition until it starts spreading where you want. Make sure every time you inject, there's spread so you're not in a vessel and make sure that the patient doesn't have a painful paresthesia, and there's not much more rocket science to it. This is, I think, much easier than doing a purple IV. Okay, femoral. So, I'll pause for a second. So, femoral artery here. This is femoral nerve. And this, anybody know what this is? So what kind of tissue is it? You've been looking at it, talking about it. So it's fascia, 
and it's overlying the iliacus muscle. What do you think that fascia is called? Fascia iliaca. Okay. If you don't get deep to that when you do a femoral nerve block, it's not going to work. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we demonstrate. But what I want you to pay attention to is here's a needle coming in out of uh, in plane from lateral to medial, and this is a little pocket of local here. And as they inject, it's going to spread up, it's going to increase in size, and then it's going to decrease again. And what happens when you stop injecting is the anesthetic is spreading into the screen and out of the screen, right? Proximally and distally. So that's normal. That's not the same as getting an injection where there's no spread, right? It's not, it's not spreading and then being absorbed into a vessel. You don't have to panic when you see that. That's normal. And in fact, if you aspirate, they'll be able to aspirate some of it back. So right there, they aspirate a little, and it shrinks. Aspirate a little more, and then inject and you can see it kind of tracking down, pulling the muscle off of the femoral nerve and increasing that pocket, and then shrinking again. So you will see that as you start to put large volumes in. You'll get this spread, it'll shrink down, you'll aspirate, shrink a little further, spread, it'll, it'll go back up again. Um, in the era of, like well into the era of YouTube, there's no reason for you not to go online and watch a bunch of blocks and see what a successful block looks like. And you can go from start to finish, how the spread, how the, how the operators reposition the needle to try and get better spread, and you can learn a lot just by watching people doing it. It's like watching tape for the NFL or college football. Right, just watch and see how they did it, and they're all videotaped, and you can see from start to finish, oh wow, that nerve was really close to the artery, and their trajectory didn't look good, so they did this instead, they did an out-of-plane block. Or maybe they went a little lateral first, or whatever else they did. Okay. Um, just an example of the kind of, um, this is a, a checklist that we're using in RED and have been for a, about almost three years now. Um, for elderly patients with hip fractures, um, we don't block people who are like multi-system trauma with a hip fracture or people who are found down in their home and septic and have been there forever. We're really like low energy, trip and fall, 90% of our hip fractures are like that. And we don't do allergy to local anesthetics. And anticoagulated patients, the guidelines will be observed and decision made by supervising physicians. That's clearly a do what you want to do, but we put it on there so you can't say we weren't considering it. Um, and then Tylenol, acetaminophen is overlooked for these patients. Uh, Weight-based dose of opioid uh, analgesic, and then a fascia part of block. We have a um, volume-based dosing guide that we use to make it simple for people to not convert percentages into milligrams and get it right. We underdose it by this, and in practice, a lot of us use a little bit higher than this, which is fine. But we do that for the novice people who may mess up and use the wrong concentration, they'd still be safe. And we're switching to Nopivacaine shortly because it's safer than Nopivacaine as we talked about. Um, but I put this up there just because regional is a great chance to kind of pull together some of the other parties that are interested in your hospital. Um, when I was out in, uh, in California, we got our trauma surgeons and orthopedic surgeons involved. You'd often get these young, I mean, in Oakland, you would get a femur fracture from being shot in the femur more often than you get one from falling at an elderly age. And those patients would often get blocked in the trauma bay before they got moved over to get their x-rays and everything else done. And just had a much easier time as opposed to turning and repositioning and everything else they have to do. So when you involve your consultants and get them on board, if we can get our consultants in my academic hospital to buy into regional from the orthopedic side, the orthogeriatric side, the anesthesia side, the ED side, I, it, I'm pretty comfortable you can get it done anywhere if you can get it done where I'm working. Um,